bear with me. It's not just that for how hungry his people were. Like they were starving in the streets and he's plump. So I don't know. Anyway, controversial leader out of the way. Let's get serious. The queen of hearts from Alice in Wonderland. I'm confident that she was a bad leader. Okay. You can't just run around night and day screaming off with their heads, right? Bad, bad leader. That's not going to get it done. How about this one? Lotso. Give me a break. Give me a break with lot pretending to be all nice. Welcome to Sunnyside. Enjoy life in the caterpillar room or whatever one it was. Yeah, right. Uh, how about this guy? Prince John from, from Robin Hood. Look, I'll, t- I'll tell you number one reason why he's a bad leader. Okay? Good leaders don't have pet snakes. Okay? <laughs> Period. Done. Next. Scar from the Lion King. Bad leader. Uh, his biggest mistake, I think we all agree, he was friends with the hyenas. So not only do you need to choose your pets wisely as a leader, but your friends you need to choose wisely as well. Bad leaders, okay? Let's get that off. In the case of those cartoons, okay, listen, we don't have to wonder how some of those people got those jobs, but with other leaders, other bad leaders, we might be a little bit curious how does someone who's a bad leader get that job in the first place? Uh, a book written a long time ago by a doctor named Dr. Lawrence Peter, he talked about this sort of unique principle about bad leaders. Here is the point of his book and this principle. In almost every organization, whether it's sports or business or whatever, every organization will have Competent people, smart people, knowledgeable people, qualified for the job that they're doing, but they continue to be promoted upwards, sort of up and up and up they go until they hit a point in which they've kind of risen to this spot for which they're now no longer qualified. They are no longer capable of doing that job because they don't have the, the qualities to do what that job demands. So... Someone may be really good at like delivering the mail in the, you know, for this business, but that doesn't mean we should, you know, make her like the president of the company. Okay, that's what he's talking about. So, head coaches and CEOs and leaders of of every kind, if they aren't qualified, disaster will follow. So, it's no secret that. Everything's going to rise and fall on leadership. Success is going to be attributed to that leader. And of course, failures, those are also sort of his responsibility or her responsibility. As goes the leadership, so goes the organization. Let me give you another example. Head coach Hugh Jackson, a pretty special career as a football coach. Uh, Let's just talk about this one part, his winning percentage. uh, You may be curious about it. Out of 40 games, as a head coach in the NFL, out of 40 games, 
What do you think? I mean, who think how, who could take a guess? How many games do you think he won out of 40? Dax, it's your birthday. What do you think? 33 games. Okay. Just a little high, a little too high. I will give you one more guess. 26. And you would be like, oh, that guy's a bad coach, right? This guy won three games. Did you guess three? Is that what you said? Hey, up here. You said three? Man, good job. Good guess. What do you like? Jamba juice? Here, take this gift card, man. Good. Great guess. I just like to give stuff away. <laughs> he won three games. He has, the, he has the record for being the worst coach in the NFL for a coach who's coached 40 games. And you think, how did this guy get this job? How did he get there? Well, he was like a good assistant coach. He was good at that, and he was promoted upward until he found himself in this head coach spot where he clearly wasn't qualified for the job. So this principle, it's going to be true in sports and in business. It's sometimes true in cartoons, but this principle can also very much be true in the church. Men can be promoted to positions of leadership to which they are woefully underqualified. And what's worse their qualities and their sort of characteristics, those can be and they will be sort of the qualities and characteristics of believers in that church. That's what leaders do. They have a way of of leading people to become just like them. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 39, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be just like his teacher. So Jesus is helping his disciples understand a valuable principle. It's way more important than that sort of principle that that doctor pointed out. It's, it's that people turn into their teacher. They become like their leader. And in the church, the people there, they're going to become like their pastors given enough time. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that a pastor must be qualified. The church can't promote someone to this pastoral position just because they like them, you know, or just because this man's had some amount of success in business or in coaching or in leadership or whatever, they must be qualified according to God's standards. And if they aren't, trouble will absolutely follow. If a pastor lacks self-control, eventually his church will be the same. If a, if a pastor is quarrelsome, Given enough time, so too will be the spirit of that church. So as we come back to 1 Timothy, we're going to get a glimpse tonight of how God protects his church by giving us a really helpful standard for leadership. This standard is is so helpful for the church to function the way God wanted it to function. And that's what... First Timothy is all about. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to be an aid 
to the church. And it was written so that uh, believers, that they would grasp what the church is for and what the church is and how people fit into the church and how everyone functions within the church. And if the church follows God's plan for this, for how the church is supposed to be, it's going to be a, a huge benefit to everyone who's inside the church. Those who are there, I mean, the, the believers who are there are going to benefit so much more. But, but there's actually more to that. If the church follows God's plan, it's also going to be a benefit for those outside the church. I don't think we can ignore the emphasis Paul placed at the beginning of chapter 2. The church must be in order. It must function the right way because the church is a light for the lost. It's a place for, for those lost to be found, for sinners to be redeemed. It's a place for the unrighteous to be saved. And, and, and church order then is a priority for Paul because it's a priority for God. God cares how we order the church. He cares how we act in the church. He cares about who does what. He cares about how we live our lives. And last week, we got a little glimpse of how God protects the church, how he, how he helps us understand how we should function inside the church by not only helping us understand the different roles that, that men and women are to play, but more how we should live and how we should focus on, on godliness. But, but very specifically, Paul addressed that role of leadership. When it comes to roles within the church, women aren't to be in that role of leader. That's a, a, a specific spot that spiritual leadership over the church is meant to be filled by a man. But to ensure that the church becomes what it should, God through Paul's letter, he gives us these helpful qualifications for leadership. Not just every single man becomes an elder or a pastor or a leader of a church. These guys have to be qualified. There's necessary character that matters that, that these men are to demonstrate. They're to display in their lives. And it's these qualities that we're going to look at tonight, these characteristics that ensure that the church becomes what it's intended to become. I want to show you that. Our, our big idea tonight, Christians need God-approved leaders. Christians need God-approved leaders. I might say it this way, Christians need the right pastor or pastors. They need godly elders, godly leaders so that they become godly themselves. I think we'll see that tonight. A disciple becomes like his teacher. So what kind of teachers should the church have? Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It's a trustworthy saying, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own, his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? 
verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he'll not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Before the character of the leader sort of finds the spotlight here, it's his desire that must be sort of looked at first. That's kind of our first point tonight, just talking about the desire of this godly leader. Verse 1 says, the saying is trustworthy. And we see that phrase pop up five times in the letters that Paul writes to pastors. And each time he, he writes it, we know that Paul is about to write a hugely important truth for the church. We saw one in chapter 1, verse 15, and it was all about the gospel, this trustworthy statement, this, this reality that we need to know. And it's, it's that Jesus came to save sinners. So here, uh, this one, like that one in chapter 1, it's this obvious truth it's a truth that doesn't need to be proved. Uh, the other four deal with, with doctrine, crucial, critical doctrine, and this one deals with the call to ministry, this desire to ministry, and, and it's a desire to lead. And clearly, then, this is, a, this is an important thing. This, this call, this desire that this man should have, it's, it's something that's really, really important for the church, and it's something that should be taken really seriously. Church leadership can attract leaders with, with bad motives and sinful motives. Some men might think, wow, it looks you know, cool to be a pastor, or you know, it would be so fun to like just know what's going on with everybody and kind of be in everybody's business. Or, or they might think like it looks awesome to, to have people ask you like what to do and and then they actually listen to the advice that you give them. That must be so incredible. I mean, those are all bad motives for this kind of job, this leadership role. Those are bad reasons for, for wanting to be a pastor. Paul wants men to desire this noble task. And really the word is beautiful, this beautiful task, because they would understand what it is. They would know what it is to be an elder, a pastor. The, the whole point is that they would desire leadership and, and they would begin with like this passionate compulsion, this really genuine desire to oversee the church. And that word also indicates that the desire is, is for the church's overall good and not for anything bad. There's no evil, there's not, not, not something in there that isn't honoring to God. So a man should want to become a pastor if he has a desire for it. And if he doesn't, he shouldn't. And if he also, you know, has like motives for personal gain or personal attention, that's a huge reason to not become a pastor. Paul helps us understand that right out of the gate. And if a man does have this desire, though, then there's this list of qualifications, and those two must be evident in his life. This is the kind of leader that God says is qualified. This is the kind of pastor that a church should be looking for, and it starts with his reputation. It actually starts and ends with reputation. 
Verse 2 says he must be a man above reproach. That means that whatever can be seen about this guy, his life, whatever is like observable, there's nothing in this guy's life that would cause somebody else to say like, wait, really? This guy? He's going to be our pastor? Come on. Scar? Like, no, this is not, this is not right. And as we think about where this list begins and ends, we we see in verse seven, just the same thing. He must be well thought of by outsiders. This is like the whole gist. It's It's about reputation, his character, who he is, not just at church on Sunday, but who he is in his home, who he is in the community. How do people think about this guy? What do people think about this guy? He has to have a good reputation. And then it moves to like his marriage. He he better have a good marriage if he's married. It says he's to be a one woman man. It's this most important relationship outside of his relationship with God. And he's to be faithful. He's to be loyal to the one that he's made an oath with, this covenant to love this man must be one who has the highest integrity with his, his spouse he's faithful to to love this one person and he embraces like the moral purity that would be required to have a healthy marriage that sort of summarizes his character here but really this isn't about marital status it's about the character of a man You can be single and be a leader in the church, but his character must be one that exhibits moral purity. He isn't chasing girls. He isn't distracted by women or led astray or tempted into some horrible, sinful, moral failure. He's he's faithful. He's morally pure. And then the next three qualities in verse two seem to form like a a nice little group. They work together. One pastor called these qualities of self mastery. There, you know, here's the triplet it's temperate, it's sensible, and respectable. Temperate is descriptive of someone who's clear headed, sensible is about being self controlled and respectable. Again, it just points to the view of others. What what do they think about this guy? He must be respected. He should be admired. He should be thought highly of. Man, how would a a guy be this way? His his self-mastery, it's got to be dependent on on the Lord. It it clearly has to come from God. I think of Galatians 5.22, the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-controlled. That's what this man should be. The church is looking for a guy like that who's really just his, his life's been changed by the Son of God. And his life is mastered by the Spirit of God. He lives this way. In verse 2, it's long. It goes on. He also must be hospitable and able to teach. You might say that reflects his ministry. He's to be hospitable. He's to open his home. His home should be just one where anyone would feel welcome. He should have a genuine joy and love for the people of God. And this man's ministry, it's not limited to just, you know, being good at inviting people over. He's also supposed to be able to teach. 
In another passage where Paul talks about these qualifications for elders, Paul explains it in a little more detail. He says in Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He, he must be one who's been taught the word of God. He, he knows God's word to the level that he can explain it. And his explanation is right. He can teach what he says is biblically sound. And, and not only does he know what's right, but I think we need to think about he also knows what's wrong. He's, he's able to correct those who are in error, those who aren't really handling God's word the right way. That's such an important qualification for every elder. We can actually just think back to chapter 1. What was the problem with the false teachers here in, in this church at Ephesus? They didn't understand the word. They had no clue how to teach it. They had no ability to to explain what it meant because they didn't understand it. So an elder must be able to teach. That is a non-negotiable. And this list goes on. He must also be, be temperate. He must not be addicted to wine. That means he's not to be a drunk. He's not a man that hangs out in the bar or, or goes to a place where, where drinking is kind of the, the thing. Can't be a man also who's pugnacious. That's a, just a big word that means violent. <laughs> he loves to fight. That, that, that's not going to be who this guy is. His, his reaction to trouble isn't, you know, let's, let's, let's get this, let's go. You know, that's not what he does. He's to be one with a reputation for gentleness. He's to be considerate, verse 3 says. He doesn't hold grudges. He's quick to forgive. He's gracious. He doesn't retaliate. He can receive criticism. He's also peaceable. Peaceable isn't about not, you know, fighting physically. It's actually just a a person who isn't always getting into arguments. He's not a quarrelsome guy. He doesn't love to argue. He doesn't love to, to run his mouth. There's more than this. His view of money matters as well. Verse 3, it sort of ends with that description. This man can't be someone who loves money. Actually, chapter 6 of verse Timothy gives us a really great reason why. Verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. This kind of church leader, he can't be somebody who loves money. It's far too risky. And there's more. Verse 4 and 5 talk about his household. I know we're going fast and I'm giving you a lot, but I just want to help you see this picture. You can tell a lot about a man by the way his house functions. Here's what Paul's getting at. There's... So much we could say about this, but his children and his wife, they should follow his example if he, if he has children. They should be submissive to his leadership. They should want to be just like their dad. And if they aren't, there should be doubts about his ability to lead, not just his household, but certainly the household of God. And 
verse 6 just gives us one more area to consider, and that's the spiritual maturity of this man. He can't be a new convert, Paul says. Otherwise, he's going to become conceited. That's a word that means filled with smoke. He's going to be full of hot air, so full of himself, so prideful, because he's, he's new to the faith and he's already established this high level of leadership, thinking way too highly of himself. That's not the kind of leader that God wants in charge of his church. And again, verse 7, it just ends where we begin, back to reputation. So this guy, this man, he must be above reproach. And it needs to be in these areas, his own self-control or self-mastery. That, that just needs to be like, when you think of this man, you would say, yep, self-controlled for sure. Good reputation in that area. And also in his, in his ministry and how he uses his spiritual gifts. Love being in his house. And he's a great teacher. He can, he can help me understand God's word. He doesn't have to be like the most, you know, engaging, energetic teacher, but he handles God's word rightly. That matters. No one can have anything against him in his temperance or his temperament. He can't be a lover of money and his family, if, if he has one, should be in order. You should be able to tell that his family loves to follow him. He should be a man known for spiritual maturity. And this, this is the kind of leader that God desires for his church. And if everything rises and falls on leadership, boy, I think then there's just a lot at stake here. Because what this man who leads is like, it's, it's only going to be replicated in his church. And it's interesting because what follows this list in 1 Timothy is another list. And it's a description of deacons, of those who serve in the church as deacons or deaconesses. Here's what Paul writes in verse 8. Just listen, we're we're almost done here. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond or above reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own households well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing, Great boldness in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. So here we're introduced to another office in the church, another description. It's for both men and women, deacons and deaconesses. And deacon is just a word that means servant. That's what it means. It's a servant. And we could look at a ton of verses, and I don't know it's message is already getting long to understand it better, but deacon is, is a word that's meant to designate all kinds of service in the church. And every follower of Christ is to be a humble servant, striving to be a deacon or a deaconess. That is 
exactly what we are called to do. We're to be one who humbly serves in the church, and Jesus sets himself as the ultimate example of that. I'll just give you one. On the night before the crucifixion, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and there he's washing their feet. And in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? And that word serve is deacon. Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves, the one who deacons? As you become more and more like Christ, as you grow in your faith, you're becoming more and more like him, this one who came to serve, this, this one who ministers and, and cares for all. And you should want to be a deacon. Like I said, you should want to be a deaconess, but you should want to be able to say of that list, like, yeah, that's who I am. By God's grace and by the Spirit's help, that's who I am in Christ. That's me, this list. We don't need to go through this list because, honestly, we we already understand it. This is almost exactly the same as the qualifications for elders. And isn't that so interesting? That brings us right back to the seriousness of the one who leads, the one who, who teaches. If God wants his people to be this way, as we see in verses 8 to 13, it goes without saying, obviously, in a big, fat, duh, that the leaders then too would be just like this. The pastors and the elders and the leaders of the church, they must be this way too. They must exemplify these qualities above all. This is how God tells us things in the church should be. This is, this is how it must be. We need the right leaders. We need godly leaders. For putting people in leadership who aren't this list in verses 1 through 7, I guarantee you we will not have a church that looks like verses 8 through 13. Church needs a leader who understands the beautiful, hard task in front of him. One who can say, follow me as I follow Christ, and no pastor is perfect. But these characteristics, they must be true of his life overall. And if they are, man, then the church benefits. Every believer can say without hesitation, I want to be just like my pastor. Because, Lord willing, this pastor is precisely who God wants me to be like. Father, thank you for a glimpse at leadership in your church. Lord, we see how important it is. You tell us it's a trustworthy statement that a man should not only desire to be this kind of leader, but also one who exemplifies these characteristics. Lord, we're grateful to go to a church where our pastor is that way. and We're grateful to be at a church that takes your word so seriously and 
knows not to deviate from it, but to trust it and to try our best to put it into practice. Lord, thank you that our church is this way. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not only be grateful for that reality, but Lord, even to learn tonight from a passage like this that we can be just like our pastors because our pastors are who you want them to be. Father, help us to strive to live this way, to be servants of all. Lord, to to have this description of a deacon, a deaconess, be true of our lives as it's appropriate. Father, thanks again for your word. I pray you'd help us to, to listen, to apply, to become precisely who you want us to be. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.